0: from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today Carly and Cece are looking at two query letters each and we're gonna have Carly kick us off. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca,
1: you already helped me check an item off my bucket list when I appeared on the podcast to discuss my first novel. During that discussion, Carly had expressed interest in finding more men writing romantic comedy, so I'm taking another shot with my newest project. I'll spare your listeners from the sound of my voice this time, but I'm no less excited to hear your feedback. Please allow me to present The Love Adjustment, an 80,000-word adult romantic comedy. For fans of The Roughest Draft and The Honeymooners, we'll enjoy how the novel weaves together the dual POV perspective of former friends becoming lovers with the classic fake dating trope. The story centers around a handsome chiropractor who helps his estranged childhood best friend save face by posing as her boyfriend at a tropical destination wedding. Late bloomer, Adam reinvented himself after high school, overcompensating for his teenage virginity with frequent casual sex, never with the same woman twice. Though he hasn't seen Courtney in 10 years, her presence across the bar distracts him enough to sabotage his latest first date. Adam resentfully dismisses Courtney when she approaches him, but can't stop thinking about her afterwards. He promised his older sister, his only confidant aware of their history and his destructive dating habits, that he won't sleep with Courtney anxious to make amends for casting him aside when she became popular courtney lures adam to dinner under false pretenses her plan goes awry when her pompous ex and current boss appears with his gorgeous new girlfriend courtney panics and introduces adam as her boyfriend a lie that could embarrass her and cost her a big promotion at work but adam plays along and volunteers to continue the charade through her co-workers upcoming wedding in barbados Old scars, new secrets, and mutual attraction complicate matters, but falling in love might be the biggest obstacle to rebuilding their lost friendship. I enjoy reading stories that make me laugh and strive to infuse that dynamic into my own manuscripts. When I'm not working, writing, or engaging with the hashtag writing community on Twitter, I can be found with my amazing wife cheering for our three children on various Tampa Bay area soccer fields. Thank you for considering my query. Please let me know if I may send you the full manuscript or answer any questions you may have. Best regards, Mr.
0: Julie. (laughs) (laughs) I love Mr. Julie. Right, so for the rest of you who have submitted and perhaps haven't had your work selected, please resubmit. And if you have submitted in the past and you're working on something new, please submit that to us as well. As you can see, Mr. Julie, this is his second time on the podcast. And, you know, we we don't want to say that just because your work wasn't chosen in the past, it won't be chosen in the future. Okay, Carly, will you give us the word count and your take on that?
1: All right. So 393 is where we came in on this one. So I agree. I love seeing people pitching us again on the podcast because I also love when authors query me, you know, say in the slush pile, if, you know, I didn't pick up their first book or even if I requested their first book and then they're like, okay, should I submit to her again? Yes, please, please always keep trying me. You never know. We never know what's going to happen. All right. So I I really like this concept. I mean, this is a really good trope. It's a classic fake dating trope for a reason. It's a good trope. But I think we really need to know, though, is what your spin is on it. I think that's kind of what's missing here. You have a line that says perspective of former friends becoming lovers with the classic fake dating trope. Right. So it's like you're admitting that it's like classic, not that it's tired, but that it's classic. Right. And so I think the really important thing here is for us to understand what about it has a spin. What about it is unique. I think the hardest thing about this trope is that it has to be so earned on the page through chemistry and through dialogue. So in terms of a pitch, I think this is really interesting. But I will say that I'm really curious about the pages to see whether it, as I said, whether it's earned on the page through that, through that dialogue and chemistry.
0: Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages?
1: All right, so we start with a name stamp. So we have Adam, chapter one. So Adam is on a first date. He is saying he's at, you know, a nice restaurant in a trendy part of town. He's talking about, you know, the woman sitting across from him. And then all of a sudden he gets very distracted because based on the query letter, as we know, he sees Courtney in the bar. So we get a little blast from the past. He kind of explains a little bit of their kind of friendship and exactly kind of what happened between them. There's a lot of description in terms of the location and what everybody looks like. And he but then he kind of has to snap back to it and kind of get back to his date. And they have a a lack of chemistry date where they're not sinking and, you know, not answering each other's questions and both very distracted. And but he's going back to Courtney and kind of noticing her. And then she comes up to him and says, do I know you as if like she doesn't recognize him? And then he's like, oh, crap, she didn't recognize me at all. So he was kind of like, I don't want to pretend that I know her if she doesn't know me. So we kind of fizzle out there in terms of their dialogue at the end of the sample.
0: Great, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on them?
1: All right. So firstly, I will say, I think we're spending too much time slipping back into the past. On page one, it's the second paragraph where we're already talking about, you know, Courtney Cutler was my best friend growing up, blah, 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 blah. You know, we're getting into the whole backstory of their middle school friendship. It's just way too soon to be slipping into into backstory because whenever we slip into backstory too soon, it always makes me think, are we starting the novel in the right place? Like, why, why do we have to get into backstory so fast? You know, if we were starting at the right place, I don't think we would have to do this. So that's just something I wanted to to mention, there was a line that I really liked. It was childhood best friend turned unattainable high school crush, never fully vacated the spot she once occupied in my head. I think that was nice, but I think ultimately we spend these first five pages repeating ourselves, what recording meant to him, repeating himself that the date's not going well. And there's a lot of physical descriptions of women. I just, we don't need it. We don't need it. Right. I think the most important thing with this category is that we feel on an emotional level when characters are connecting. And so physical descriptions, are kind of they're not it's not that they're not useful it's just like that's not the point right like when we're talking about true connection and true chemistry between people we don't need to spend a number of pages talking about what everybody looks like he's also pretty unlikable you know and I think it is kind of a classic like grumpy sunshine kind of romance thing where maybe he's less likable and you know eventually he becomes likable but I just want you to know he's reading unlikable he dismisses this date that he's on. He says, like, oh, she'd be bored if I talked about my job. But, like, he doesn't have any interest in learning about her job. Like, yeah, he's distracted by Courtney. But I just don't know why he would be making so many assumptions about this woman. It makes him incredibly unlikable. We're also repeating Courtney's name a lot. And, again, I think this is just because we're dwelling on this quite a bit. So a lot of Courtney's name. But at the end of the day, yeah, I I think he's unlikable. And I just want you to know that. So if that's something where you do want to kind of make a tweak at this stage, that would probably be something you'd want to consider... Or if you know that he's unlikable and you're leaning into it, you just have to know that the reader just might not be as interested in starting with this POV. Like maybe we need to start with Courtney's POV. Just throwing that out there.
0: Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, let's go to your first query letter.
2: Dear Ms. Lira, I'm a new listener to the show, but I've been greedily going through the archive and learning a great deal already. Thank you for the service you do for writers by critiquing their work and to the rest of us for letting us listen as you do so. I hope you'll consider The Good of the Family, a 96,000-word work of contemporary literary fiction with the narrative and tonal variation of The Candy House and themes reminiscent of Transcendent Kingdom and The Book of Form and Emptiness. After working with an agent on a co-authored novel, I'm seeking alternative representation for my solo projects. Sarah Stein's life changes forever when her brother Rob calls her at 3 in the morning to announce he spent the last few days sleeping on the sidewalk in Denver and doesn't want to be homeless. She and her husband Alex fly him across the country to help him get back on his feet, and so begins their journey through prickly questions of family and mental illness. Rob's situation incites varied reactions among his siblings. Sarah upends his life as she struggles to figure out the right level of involvement and hurts herself in the process. Alex casts himself as the protector of his nuclear family, even when this means lying to his wife. His sister and Sarah's other brother enter into a relationship fueled by toxic pity porn of Rob's situation. Rob's nephew grows up under the threat of bipolar disorder and tussles with the internalized stigma of his own mental illness. Meanwhile, Rob himself pursues stability, family, and a future that's often threatened by his bipolar diagnosis. Sometimes he finds success and sometimes he finds catastrophic loss. The Good of the Family follows multiple characters over a span of decades whose lives and aspirations intersect and sometimes conflict. It explores what normal means, the line between mental illness and the spectrum of neurodivergence, our self-definitions, the systemic hurdles that sometimes make it hard to care for each other, and what we truly owe to one another. Nominated for Pushcart Prize by the Massachusetts Review, my short fiction has appeared in Joyland magazine, Juked, Flash Fiction magazine, The Citron Review, Anna Malema, Fractured West, Underground Voices, Full of Crow, The Huffington Post, and more. My nonfiction has appeared in Bloomberg Inc., Good Magazine, Real Simple, Travel and Leisure, Forbes, and more. Warmly, Alison.
0: Thank you so much, Cece. Okay, word count on that, and what was your take on it?
2: So the word count is around 400 words. I wanna say that the writing in this query letter is so polished, like it's one of the most polished I've ever seen. Excellent job tightening the sentences and just making sure that, you know, it's just really flowing very smoothly. I really like the title. I also really love that the inciting incident is clear. I'm wondering if it's intentional that we have no context on Sarah other than what's happening to her brother and that she's married. Because I assumed because Sarah Stein is the first name character name we see that she was a protagonist. So I was wondering, hmm, I wonder if that's intentional. And my only note in terms of the plot point is that I'm not seeing, I'm not quite seeing plot points, actually. So my only note in terms of the plot paragraph is that I'm not quite seeing plot points. Rather, we're getting characterization and themes. It's true that some literary fiction, that's what you get. (laughs) There's very, very little plot. And I love reading literary fiction. So it's going to come down to, is this kind of, is this book written in a way that makes me want to keep on reading because of the beautiful sentences? That's what it's going to come down to, given what's in this query letter for me. Thank you for sharing.
0: Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay. Can you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages?
2: So it's, we're told, this is told from the point of view of Alex, not Sarah. I thought it was Sarah based on the query letter. Alex is asleep when Sarah's phone starts to ping and Rob eventually calls, or maybe she calls Rob, Rob is her brother, Rob is homeless, and they're thinking to themselves, should we invite him over? The reason why it's even a question this time is because Sarah's pregnant. They haven't shared this with anyone. You know, they're excited, but at the same time, they're, you know, a little terrified in terms of what Rob's presence is going to mean now that they have a future baby to think about. And then we have a line break. We go back to college, still all in Alex's point of view. We find out how Alex met Rob. They were college roommates. And that's also how he met Sarah, because Rob started struggling with his mental health. Alex had to bring in his sister to help, and that's how they met. And it establishes that Rob became a burden to Alex. Another line break, we come back to the present, and they decide that they have to have Rob over, and Rob arrives.
0: Okay, what did you think about those opening pages?
2: So I want to say that the first line here is excellent. You know, it it immediately told us what was happening. There's a lot of really amazing lines. The interiority is very well developed in terms of giving us the protagonist's unflinchingly opinionated views, which I love in interiority. I always say, like, avoid wishy-washy interiority. People are supposed to feel strongly about things, so I love that. My concern is, and I'm pretty sure that this came across when I was describing what was happening in the pages... Is that this is all about Rob, right? This is all about this character whose point of view we don't even get. I'm struggling with the fact that the focus is all on Rob and yet he's not the protagonist. That's really hard to pull off. It can be done, but in my opinion, in order for this to work in these specific pages, we need two things. One, we need more specificity, and two, we need the interiority, Alex's interiority, to be developed alongside Rob's. His own situation as it relates to Rob needs to be brought to the surface. I know that's going to make it sound like he's making it about him, but that is what we do in our heads. We make things about us. So what do I mean by that? So in terms of the more specificity, I'm not understanding how Rob's mental illness in college is affecting him. So for example, is he at risk of failing out of school? What, what exactly how how exactly is his behavior causing problems that's what I want to understand and then in terms of the interiority being a little bit more connected to Alex's thoughts one thing that was missing and that to me did not sound believable at all is we have a college aged guy right so I'm assuming he's 18 he just met his roommate um he was expecting his roommate to be annoying but it turns out that he's great but then he starts having mental health problems and it's very clear that he becomes a burden my question is, What is Alex's experience with mental health before this? Because he must have had some, right? Like, did he have a mother that he used to care for? Did he have a father that he used to care for? Does he have like a great uncle twice removed that, you know, he's never actually met, but there are stories about his mental health struggles in his family. There is nothing on that. There's absolutely no mention of how Alex even sees mental health. And I'm assuming this took place, I don't know, many, many years ago. So mental health wasn't even a hot topic back then. Nowadays, we talk a lot about it. So yeah, that's missing here. And I did mark the moments in which I thought, hey, maybe he would be thinking about his own situation here. So I think the writing is really strong. It's very interesting. But yeah, I would be i would be interested in going deeper. That would be my absolute big picture no, Please go deeper.
0: Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, we're going to go to your second query letter.
1: Alright, this one's clocking in at 3.58. Here we go. As a dedicated fan of the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast, I'm excited to submit my 86,000 word upmarket thriller for your consideration. Told in dual POV and timelines, Murder Map tells the story of a young woman's search for the truth behind her mother's mysterious disappearance. With a plot twist that rivals The Silent Patient and The Plot, the novel will appeal to readers of Gillian Flynn's Dark Places and Leanne Moriarty's Big Little Lies who appreciate strong family drama and women's fiction. 22-year-old Kit Canyon moves from the wilds of California's Lower Sierra to the coastal enclave of Santa Barbara to find answers to her mother's death. Twenty years earlier, her mother left to run an out of town errand from which she never returned. Flash forward two decades, and the Santa Barbara police have identified recently uncovered bones as belonging to Kit's mother, Maggie May. When we first meet Kit, the amateur detective has followed a clue and taken a gardening job at a Santa Barbara nonprofit which oversees a ramshackle mansion owned by the influential Cotswold family. The Cotswolds are considered pillars of the local community and the benefactors who keep the debt-laden estate from shutting its doors, but looks can be deceiving and all the money in the world can't keep dark secrets from developing lives of their own murder map is told through kit and maggie's alternating povs maggie's story begins soon after she moves to santa barbara from the hamptons in a failed attempt to escape her conflicted past kit's story begins on the day she leaves kernville on her mission to uncover the truth the two timelines collide when kit exposes maggie's murderer and faces a deadly encounter of her own I am a former business banker, college instructor, and nonprofit executive who now writes full time. Thomas and Mercer published my first two psychological suspense thrillers, What She Gave Away and What She Never Said, to excellent critical and reader reviews. Note that I have amicably parted ways with my agent and seek new representation at this time. This manuscript has not been on submission. My website is pasted below. Thanks for your time and consideration, Catherine.
0: Thank you so much, Carly. There's a lot of interest there, including, you know, speaking about how they parted ways with the agent and giving the information that the manuscript didn't go out on submission. And these are questions that we sometimes get as well. So could you touch on that as well as
1: telling us what you think of the query letter? Absolutely. That was was actually something I was definitely going to touch on so we can start there. We'll work from the bottom today. Yes, this is definitely a a transcript of what everybody should be doing in terms of how you want to communicate that information. Keeping it just like very professional, right? Note that I've amicably parted ways with my agent and seek new representation at this time. This manuscript has not been on submission. All of that is very just like we're not putting any emotion into it. If things were indeed amicable, which is I think that's great, and, and many parting of ways are, right? It's just like a change in vision and a change in career path. So, so all of that information is is very useful, and it's not expressed in an emotional way or derogatory way or anything like that. So, this, as I said, this is a great example of how to communicate that type of information. All right, so let's hop back up here. So, I just want to jump up to the to the comps. So, we have Silent Patient, the plot Dark Places and Big Little Lies. These are massive hits, right? These are massive hits. It is really hard to comp these titles. It's not that these are bad that I'm just going to say these are bad comps. These are not bad comps. These do communicate a lot about the genre and the category and how this person imagines their work to be. But when we're comping massive hits, when we're when we're comping books that have sold millions of copies and have been on the New York Times bestseller list for, you know, some of these books have been on the New York Times list for years, you know what I mean, plural, we're talking about a whole different stratosphere of type of book. It's not that any book can't get there. It's just always hard for us to kind of use that sometimes as a tool to communicate the market viability when we're talking about the unicorns, do you know what i mean? But as i said, it did a great job of kind of communicating where we imagine this book to be and and where this author imagines it in the marketplace. So, you know, that's why i just say it's it's okay. They're okay cops, you know. All right. So, next i want to get into the actual concept of the book here. So, i think one of the biggest things i think i want to understand is why doesn't she trust the cops? You know, like they they found the bones, obviously, after a long time. But right away, it's just like she's an amateur detective and she's followed a clue and she's like on a mission. Right. This is an interesting hook. I It's not that I don't enjoy the hook. I think just from a clarity perspective, I just really want to know. Why does she have to be this detective? Why aren't they telling her any answers? Why doesn't she trust the police? Like these types of things, right? All of that type of stuff I think would be would be interesting to me. And the clue is a little vague. I think I might want to know more about like what the clue is. And I'm a little bit torn about this last body paragraph where we kind of explain how the POVs are going to work. I think the only thing that kind of needs to be kept in this is the two timelines collide when Kit exposes Maggie's murderer and faces a deadly encounter of her own. That's the part I'd keep. The rest of it, I think I would probably get rid of. But congratulations on your successful book launches with Thomas and Mercer. This is a, a really interesting hook.
0: Great, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages and what was your take on
1: them? Okay, so we start with a timestamp, September 2019, which is, we're told, it's the present with our character Kit Canyon. She is kind of talking with somebody at home. They have a home over the river, wherever they are. We're told it is... Kit Canyon. We're told right away that her, she is named after the physical Kit Canyon location. So, Kit Canyon is a place. She is also named Kit Canyon. And I thought that was that was really well done. So, she's talking with Sarah. We don't know who Sarah is at first, but she's packing and she's packing up. And, you know, Sarah's saying, Are you sure you're up to this? You know, are you sure you know what you're doing? They're, she's pretty distant. She's like, you know, not trying to ha- help or pack up the car or anything like that. She's just kind of keeping to herself and goes and sits outside. And they talk in some metaphors back and forth, kind of basically saying, Like, you know, I don't want you to go and this is probably dangerous and what do you think you're getting into? Um, We also later find out that because our main character was essentially orphaned that the Sarah character has been the one to take care of her and before our character leaves off on this mission to kind of discover what happened to her mother Sarah's been wanting her to sign adoption papers which is really sweet because you know this character is grown by now but it's just such a loving sign that this person like you know wants to take care of them and wants to adopt them And, and this is the person who's taken care of them since the mother left when our character was two so that's kind of it and at the end she says you know, you'll always be my mom, no matter what I find. Okay, and what did you think of them? All right. So for those of you on Kofi, I think this is such a really good example for you guys to check out. prose That is quite voicey, but it's not like over the top. You know, and we always say like we want this character to have a distinct voice. It's like, what does that mean? Everybody who's on Kofi, and if you're not on Kofi go sign up for Kofi so you can read this one because it's so subtle everything about this is so subtle and really really well done in terms of the voice and kind of the relationship between the characters and just subtle things like you know the way that they're speaking a a quick example is just our character says I'm not complaining or nothing like that whereas somebody else they might say in a more formal way it just suggests that this character speaks a certain way and is from a certain way and it might be a dialect thing so there's just so many examples about this kind of casual way that this that this person speaks so I highly recommend checking that out. So one thing I found quite odd in this sample was that they don't have cell phones. And so it's the year 2019 and multiple times they're saying like, I don't have a cell phone and neither of them have cell phones. And I'm concerned because sometimes this is like a trope to be like, how do I get out of using technology? So I just want to flag that that was a little odd to me I'm assuming it's kind of coming back for a reason through the plot but it's definitely it's definitely standing out to me they talk in metaphor a little bit too much for my taste I think but I really liked it you know I really liked the banter between these two characters I thought this was really strong
0: wonderful Carly thank you okay let's go to our last query Cece will you read that for us
1: dear
2: Cece Carly and Bianca Thank you for your podcast. I have been devouring it since summer and it's brought me back to the conversation with the writing and writers beyond my writers group. It also reminds me to lean into specificity and keep writing because it just takes one yes. Redacted, 97,000 words, my dual timeline and POV literary novel is a family saga that explores what happens when repressed memories and contentious familial relationships collide. Like Gabriela Garcia's of Women in Salt. And Adriana Trigini's The Good Left Undone, it's located outside the U.S. and explores the relationships of complex women. Redacted follows Ligaya and Quinn, the white daughter-in-law she dislikes, to the Philippines where they will inter Ligaya's ex-husband's remains. Returning after 26 years, Ligaya wants to pop in, have the service, and leave. Unfortunately, at each turn of the funeral planning, Quinn clarifies her father-in-law's wishes appending Ligaya's plans for remembering her ex-husband. As she confronts the reality that she may not have known her ex-husband slash best friend as well as she thought, Legaya's memories refuse to remain interred, and she unwillingly unfurls her past, including her arranged marriage triggered by a friend's murder, to Quinn. Quinn having been pressured into the trip by her grieving husband hopes that visiting her father-in-law's childhood home will ease her grief for the man she loved like a father as she names his wishes and risks ligaya's wrath quinn's frustrations with her own husband who should be there too rose her troubles continue as she fumbles through cultural misunderstandings like assuming three young boys want to rob her that paint her as an entitled white american only when quinn learns to respect her in-laws' decision to surrender their own desires to please their parents, and Ligaya acknowledges that she wasn't and isn't the only one who sacrificed for family, can the women create their own version of a mother-daughter relationship? The truth in the story comes from my in-laws' stories and the time I spent in the Philippines doing research. I hold an MA in Creative Writing from Sacramento State, where I won a Bazanella Award for Graduate Creative Nonfiction. In 2020, I attended the Community of Writers Fiction Workshop. My creative nonfiction has appeared in Under the Gum Tree and Correct Review, anthologized and nominated for a pushcard prize. Anax Sastra, July 2019, published a chapter from Redacted. The Louisville Review, Spring 2020, published a chapter from my second novel in progress. I work at the UC Davis, where I support developing writers, and in my me time, I devour literary novels, kayak fish, and cater to my giant, goofy German shepherd. I would be so grateful for the opportunity to share Redacted with you. I intend to develop a long writing career, and I'm looking for the kind of partnership you offer. May I send you my full manuscript? With gratitude, Bridget, last name Redacted.
0: Wonderful, Cece. Okay, how many words in that, and what was your take on it?
2: So this is at 500 words. It's a little on the long side. I have a few like small notes, things like let's italicize titles of comps, or you can also use all caps if you prefer, though I know some people like to keep the all caps for their titles only. The readability could use some work. I felt like some of the sentences, like I kept tripping over them and having to reread them to make sure that I knew like what was being said. So I would just make sure to just tighten sentences a little bit more. I love the built-in tension, right? Like a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law they don't like each other they have to travel together to do something that's inherently stressful that part is great built intention it makes for a great setup for your story the only thing that kind of I thought was confusing and I didn't know if it was intentional or not her framing as like fumbles through cultural misunderstandings like assuming three young boys want to rob her The framing here is coming across as, this was just a misunderstanding, as opposed to, you know, maybe she's confronting her own racism. This is a white woman who realizes that she probably has an unconscious bias because our world is systemically racist. So I'm wondering if this framing is intentional and maybe it is, maybe that's the story. I don't want to tell you what your story should be like, but it did make me wonder if these had been three blonde haired, blue eyed boys in Norway, would she have assumed the same thing? And I don't know. I don't know if that's, if that's the case or not. Cause I ha- we have not read that scene. So just something to think about. I also thought the author paragraph was really impressive.
0: Wonderful CC. Thank you. Okay. What was in those opening pages?
2: So it's Christmas Eve, Ligaya, that is the mom, is at the airport with her daughter-in-law, Quinn, and she's regretting her frugality. She's just not happy about the fact that she's going to have to, you know, flight coach. Through interiority, we, we we learned that, you know, her son revealed to her that Quinn was going to go on the trip, not him. And she's thinking like, what is wrong with my son? Why wouldn't he go? I really don't want to go with Quinn. Ligaya makes it very clear, again, through interiority that she does not know her daughter in law, nor does she want to. She cannot get over the fact that she has no degree. It's not the fact that she's a white woman that she has a problem with. She would not have a problem with that. It's the fact that she is not traveled. She is not cultured. She has no education. So she's just like not having Quinn at all. Quinn asks her like are you sure we shouldn't bring a gift because everyone around them seems to be having a gift to go back to the Philippines because and I'm saying go back because it is assumed that everyone is visiting maybe quote unquote home that is what Ligaya assumes and then the flight is delayed so they're stuck at the airport for eight hours and Ligaya is like we are not getting a hotel eight hours is you know it's annoying but like we don't need a hotel And then we very quickly, for only a paragraph, switch to Quinn's point of view. And she is so annoyed that her mother-in-law will not pay for a hotel. And then she's she's just not happy about it. And she gets a text from her husband. So that is what happens.
0: Great, Cece. Okay, what was your take on them?
2: So in terms of big picture notes, I only have one and it's going to be super fast. I don't think you're starting in the right place. Like the whole scene where they're at the airport and all they learn through dialogue are things like the plane is getting delayed and what happened before, like we're spending too much time in the past. I think that either you up the tension on the page, the tension that could be captured with a camera, something that's happening at the airport, or you start in a different location because right now it's all hinging on the interiority and the interiority is just explaining everything to us. Like there is no room for mystery. I know exactly what has happened, which is so great in terms of like being kept informed, But it means that I'm not specifically curious about anything. I have no questions about, you know, why? How does she feel about her daughter-in-law? How does she feel about her son? How does she feel? And I should have a little bit of questions. So that's the big picture note. And in terms of like smaller notes, I just, I I kept highlighting moments in which I thought that you could tighten the writing on a line level. Things like avoiding repetition, things like making sure the first line isn't explaining. And here's an example for our listeners. First line. With the Philippines Airlines counter so far away, it appears doll-sized and a 15-hour flight looming, Ligaya regrets her frugality. If this were an article, an article in a magazine, it would be the perfect first sentence because you're doing so much with one sentence. I, however, think that because it's a novel, I would start with, Ligaya regrets her frugality. And then keep us immersed in scene, making sure that the power unbalanced is revealed. And we will put the pieces of the puzzle together. We will understand that it's because she has to play coach it just makes me feel like I'm inside someone's head more as opposed to reading information on a person because no one thinks in these full sentences. So that's just something to think about. Maybe your style is different, but I think it would go a long way in making this a bit more immersive and a bit more curiosity inducing.
0: Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Thank you to you both for your critique on these submissions. Let's go to today's
1: guest. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi, everyone.
2: This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or, The interiority here needs work and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique, but as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6th at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8pm via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by mylifeinabook.com. This is probably the most thoughtful gift I've ever come across for parents or grandparents for the winter holidays, as families get together to celebrate. It's a powerful way to connect emotionally with them, preserve their most precious memories, and show them that you really care. And best of all, it's an instantaneous gift. I've tried it with my own mother, Caroline, and she loved it. Every week, My Life in a Book lets you choose from a list of thought-provoking questions or even write your own that gets sent to your relative by email. Your relative writes their answer and can choose to add a meaningful picture. This happens every week and then at the end of one year, all their stories get combined into a beautiful keepsake book that can store your relative's memories forever and pass them on to future generations, which is printed and sent to you. You can request as many copies as you want and even get them in audio format as well. And you know how much we love audio content over here on the pod. With mylifeinabook.com, you can give those you love most a personal gift that tells them they're meaningful to you and all future generations. To save $10 off your first purchase, use discount code ABOUTWRITING10. That's ABOUTWRITING10 to get $10 off mylifeinabook.com. Hi, everyone. It's Carly Waters here. I have a really special treat for you today. Instead of Bianca doing the author interview, I am going to be interviewing one of my authors, one of my clients. And I'm so excited to introduce you to her work and her new novel coming out. And we're going to get to it. So I'm going to introduce you to my author, Kitty Johnson. That is her pen name. Her name is Margaret, so you'll hear me address her as Margaret throughout the episode. But the book, Five Winters, is by Kitty Johnson. Kitty Johnson lives in Norwich, Norfolk in the UK with her partner and teenage son. She has a master's in creative writing from the University of East Anglia and teaches creative writing part-time. A nature lover, Kitty enjoys walking in the local woods and by the sea in Norfolk with her dog. Also an artist, she paints and makes collages in her studio when she has time. Kitty enjoys a challenge and, once performed, Stand up comedy as research for a book, an experience she found very scary, but hugely empowering. I'm so glad to welcome Kitty slash Margaret, author of Five Winters, to the podcast today. Hi, Carly. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. All right. So, for everybody listening, uh, can you please tell everybody about your book, Five Winters, and how you came up with this idea?
3: Yes, yeah, sure. Five Winters is the story of Beth Bailey. She's been in love with her best friend's older brother for as long as she can remember but now it's his wedding day when the book starts and she knows she has to accept it and move on the other thing she's always wanted to do is to have a family and to be a mother she lost her own parents when she was very young and she's always wanted a family of her own so over five winters with twists along the way we follow Beth as she grows and finds out about family and friendship the meaning of love but above all, about herself on her journey towards happiness. So where, where did the idea come from? There are two answers to this question. The first one is that the first few pages and the character of Beth, it felt as if they were kind of delivered to me. I wrote them down and actually sent them to you to look at. But they've barely changed at all during all the edits, those first two pages. Beth was just so strong for me. So that's the first way that the book came about. The second is that this book has been more than 20 years in the making. And by that, I don't mean that I've been writing it for over 20 years, but it does draw on a lot of my life experiences from the very painful crushes I had in my teens, where, I'll give you an example, there was this guy called Warren Chapman uh, when I was an art student, and I kind of tagged along with his friendship group We'd go to the pub at lunchtime, and they like to play pool, so I attempted to join in, but my hands were shaking so much that the pool cue barely came into contact with the ball. So I had all of that. I had my experience of dealing with relationship breakups, with grief. Most importantly, my all-consuming, my own personal desire to be a mother, and all the steps that I took to make that come about. So when those first few pages of Beth coping up Mark's wedding came to me, I suddenly found a way to use all of that. And I hadn't been able to do that before, but suddenly it kind of all clicked into place. And it was quite magical, actually. So that's that's quite a long winded explanation how
1: the book came about. Yes, yeah, so Beth has always been such a fully realized character. I remember when you sent me those first few pages and you said, what do you think? And I I loved it from the beginning and I very much encourage you to kind of go off and finish it. And then when it came time to sell the book, I was really focused on how incredibly unique the structure was. That was another thing that I think was so exciting about this book because it is told if our listeners have read the book or seen the movie one day, each chapter covers a different year. This you know, has a similar setup where we have five sections, five Christmases or kind of five holiday seasons and we jump year to year to tell the story. So I would love for you to tell the listeners really about the structure specifically and what drew you to it as a storytelling method.
3: Well, I wanted a structure that would be different And frankly, that would grab attention because so many books come out at that time of year, around about Christmas or just before. So I wanted something that would be attention grabbing and that, frankly, would interest commissioning editors. So that was one thing. Also, when I'm writing, I do tend, when I start a book, I know the beginning, I know the end. And I usually have about three or four touchstones in between as far as I know usually so choosing five seasons five winters fitted in with that so the first winter was the beginning the fifth winter was the end and two three and four were like my three touchstones so it felt quite natural really and the structure gave me something to work towards and some some cliffhangers to work towards and that really helped me with the writing I think
1: Yeah, I remember when we were kind of in the somewhat in the idea stage or the editing stage, and we were kind of thinking about five, like, do we need the number five? And five was such like a clean and tidy number, you know, doesn't need to be four, doesn't need to be six. Yeah, five, five was always the number that we came to. So yeah, it was always wonderful how the story was always the story it was meant to be. So I want to come back to what we're talking about our character, Beth. And so... This desire for her to become a mother at all costs is something we learned pretty early on in the book. So what did you grapple with with kind of giving her these obstacles? And really, was she ever going to get distracted from this goal? Like how important was this for you to kind of show through Beth?
3: Yeah, I think that was it was really important because it's part of the it's the conflict of the book really, to a large extent. and i I guess I was able to draw on my own experience because I personally encountered many obstacles before I managed to have my son. And for some of the book, quite a large part of the book, Beth is in an almost good enough relationship. So the type of relationship that maybe outsiders would think would last. But deep down, she's always having to bend herself to make it work and kind of stuffing down her own hopes and dreams, trying to convince herself that she is enough, that what she's got is enough. And because she's given up quite a lot to be in that relationship, It would be a huge thing to admit that she's made a mistake. So she's likely to perhaps just stick with it. And it takes a really dramatic event for her to see the situation with clarity. Without that, she might have dragged herself along for years, never feeling quite good enough. And her self-esteem eroding, perhaps her dreams fading away. So once she's got over this obstacle, there are others related to the system and the people she meets. But somehow those make her even more determined.
1: One of my favourite things about working with you, one of the things that drew me to your writing from the very beginning, was what I think you do really well in all of your novels, which is the balance between light and heavy topics. I think you do this so well. In this book, we have a certain character who has some nudist tendencies. I won't tell you who that is yet. And then on the other hand, we have... like. It's these moments of absolutely deep grief, and so I really want you to kind of express to our listeners, because all of our listeners are writers, really. How you approach both of these things—the light and the heaviness—into every character and every book, and 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 what is your thought process behind all of that?
3: Yeah, sure. I think as a reader, well, I know my favorite books are always those that make me both laugh and cry. And invest all my all the range of emotions into them, so. I think that's natural that I would aspire to do that myself. And a a well-rounded character is always going to feel that whole range of emotions, I think. I'm a bit of a magpie. I don't spit. I'm alone in that. I imagine most writers are. I do store away things I see or hear or experience until it's the perfect time to use them. Just the example of the naturism. I'm a member of the Women's Institute. And during lockdown, we continue to meet via Zoom. And one of our talks was about naturism. So there's all these these women of the Women Institutes in their little Zoom boxes, we, the audience, and two women giving the talk in their little boxes, talking about naturism, only they're in their uniform. And by that, I mean, <laughs> they, they were naked. <laughs> um, they're talking about what it's like to be a naturist and about how they meet up for drinks and play sport and go hiking. And it was just pure gold, and I knew had to use it. So that's how that got tucked away, my magpie tendencies. On the other end of the scale, um, having been bereaved myself, another thing that got stored away was the extreme hurt when people who haven't suffered bereavement can't find a way to talk to the bereaved person about it and don't think they realise how hurtful that is. So that's another example of the type of thing that I store away until I can use it. And I think I have a really good emotional memory. The detail, all of those hopeless crushes and unrequited love that I went through, for example. I remember vividly, even though it was quite a long time ago, and more recently when I lost my mum, who I adored about five years ago. It's not something you forget, and those kind of things keep popping up. Even though you think you've dealt with them, they pop up and they can all be used.
1: In terms of how you store all this information, it sounds like you have a beautiful memory, but do you keep notebooks? Do you keep different files open on your computer? How do you store how do you store all of these magpies?
3: <laughs> well, I teach creative creative writing and I always encourage my students to keep a notebook, but I don't do it myself, I'm afraid. I just it just seems to stay in my mind. Luckily, hopefully it'll continue to do so. <laughs>
1: Are you ever worried that they're going to float away on you? You have such confidence. They're always going to be there when you need them. Well, they they just always seem to.
3: I suppose if you've got a personal connection to something and it moves you, then it it works for me. Yeah,
1: Well, it works for me too, because it always comes out in your stories. And I can't wait for everybody to read this book and, and experience it as well. Talking about grief a little bit, as I said, you write grief extraordinarily well, and I know it comes from such a an emotional, personal state. And we talk actually often on the podcast about grief because it's one of the hardest emotions to actually capture in a really story forward kind of way. And so and somehow you always you always manage to do that in a way that helps propel the story along. Can you talk a little bit about structurally how you use grief to move stories forward?
3: Yeah, for Actually getting across the emotions of grief, I suppose it's similar to how an actor might prepare for a role. They search back into the experience to find some something, a time when they've experienced that and bring it out again, use it again. And I suppose it's similar to me when I'm writing. But I've got experience myself of when a big emotional event, like a bereavement or a relationship breakup, can have the effect of suddenly making you see things with incredible clarity, with sharp focus. And I suppose, I, I, well, certainly in five winters, I've used that experience, which I've experienced myself, that suddenly something happens that puts relationships and friendships under the spotlight and leads to action. And I think that's just a perfect way for moving a
1: story forward. And your stories are so, and I've talked about this before, but we laugh, we cry. There's such a beautiful, heartwarming experience and, and people want to spend time with your words because you make us feel all these ways. We've talked a little bit about how this book kind of came to you whole in some senses, but what was the most challenging thing about writing this book? Did you feel kind of constrained by these different sections that, you know, you had to you had to work through or, or what would you think was challenging about this one?
3: Well, I'm not going to lie. Once I started writing it, the book practically wrote itself, which was amazing. It was almost as if it was there waiting for me. But as I've already said, that was based on more than 20 years of it simmering in the background without me even realising it was on the hot plate. So all of that is writing as well, isn't it? So I suppose the most challenging thing was discovering a way to write it, really, which when I thought of the structure was a brilliant way. But one of the things that happens in the book is that there is a period where the main character is being asked quite a lot of questions, for example, which is a perfect way to keep the reader abreast of things that have happened in the past without it being too
1: laborious. So lastly, I wanted to ask, what are you most proud of in this book? What is it that you're just most excited to get it out there in the world and experience that with with readers and, and how they feel about it?
3: Well, I, I love feeling that I've really done Beth justice in this book. I've been able to explore who she is, why she is as she is, and why she makes the decisions that she makes. I feel like I've been able to bring her to life and make the reader care about her. So I'm really proud of that. I also feel that the structure has given the reader something to do. It's not all laid out on a plate. As a reader myself, I like to have to make connections and have realisations about characters and events. And I feel that the structure, the five-year structure, does that. So I'm proud of that, I think, as well. Also proud, just as a writer, really, of the way that I've responded to feedback and suggestions for improvement. I've been lucky in that I feel that both you and Alicia, my editor, we've been on the same wavelength but I have any suggestions have been fantastic they've been really inspiring instead of discouraging and that's been great
1: i think what's so exciting about this book is that it does kind of live and exist within kind of the the history uh, or the kind of lineage of books about motherhood or thinking about motherhood or do women want to be a mother. But you add so many, as you said, other thinking pieces for the reader to kind of work towards, whether it's like the unrequited love. We're distracted by all these other things like Beth is in the book about whether she's going to achieve her, her actual goal. So I'm really excited for everybody to pick this one up and read it. It is called Five Winters by Kitty Johnson. And uh, we we look forward to hearing what you think. Well, thanks. It's been great to be on the podcast. And um,
3: you can find me on Instagram under Kitty Johnson Books and Twitter, Kitty Johnson Books, BKS, because it was books was too long to fit in. And it'd be lovely to make contact with you. Thank you, everybody, for listening.
1: All right, everybody, welcome to Cece and Carly's end of the year wrap. And I don't mean wrap as in we are going to rhyme for you. I mean, wrap as in we're going to wrap up the year, wrap like a little present, talk about some of our favorite things, what we enjoyed, how we spent our time. We we thought about getting heavy for you guys and talking about some of the big moments of the year. And we're like, maybe we'll just keep it fun. We're going to talk about our favorite books and what we've been up to and show a little behind the curtain, behind the scenes of our year. Cece, where do you think we should start?
2: I feel like this is a podcast based on books and writing. So let's start with books. What do you think?
1: Okay. Okay. So Cece, what were your favorite books you read this year?
2: So I will say that these are my favorite non-client books. I feel like I always have to make that disclaimer. That's
1: a very important (laughs) caveat. So clients, (laughs) we love you, but we're picking, we're picking non-client reads right now.
2: Yes. Non-client reads to make sure that I'm staying objective. Also definitely notes on an execution. That book. Oh my gosh. It's such a powerful novel, beautifully written. The writing is absolutely gorgeous. I am a fan of beautiful writing. So I think on the literary fiction side, I will definitely go with that one. What about you, Carly? So I
1: cheated. I picked three. So I picked a (laughs) nonfiction. I picked a nonfiction, a fiction... And I did pick a memoir that I might talk about as well. I mean, memoir is always in its own category. So for the nonfiction, I love thinking critically about our culture. And I think a big piece of that right now is wellness culture. So I love books that think critically about wellness. And so I really love Gospel of Wellness. It was by a journalist that came out this year and I think it came out in September and it just it really unpacks everything from like the clean eating movement to dieting to all these like boutique fitness crazes to like how much the wellness industry is worth and it's in the billions and like where it's going and how it's replacing religion I don't know I was obsessed with it I really really like that so I would highly recommend gospel of wellness. And then on the fiction side, I'm not quite done yet, but I picked this for my book club pick. And then everybody messaged me because I posted on Instagram and was like, this was my favorite book of the year. So I think this is going to be one of my favorite books of the year. Lessons in chemistry. Really liking that one. And I think I'm also really interested And you guys who have read this can also DM me or, or tweet at me if Twitter still exists when this comes out. So I'm so interested about the cover. So the cover is a bit commercial, the US Canadian, the North American cover. And the UK cover is a lot more kind of like a market to literary. And I've seen the cover in other markets. And so I'm so interested, like, I think this does fall into upmarket fiction, but it's been so interesting for me to see how it's been kind of positioned. So send me a tweet or a DM. Do you think the book is upmarket, commercial, literary? And did you think it was packaged in the right way? That's a question for my listeners.
2: This was already on my TBR and now it's just moved up. Like, And the reason why I really, really wanted to read it is because editors keep telling me about it when I have like catch up calls with them. You know, we always ask editors, so what are you looking for? And everyone's always saying, you know, anything that is like lessons in chemistry. And I'm like, well, I have to go read that book. And I so agree. Like the cover that I saw, I only saw the cover we have over here. It feels like a very fun, light commercial read, which is great. So I was not expecting the depth that. I guess that might be an unfair word, but I think people know what I'm saying, right? That that kind of literary, more literary, more upmarket, yeah, conversation yeah. I think it was starter. a really
1: core. I think it was a really conscious choice the way that they chose to position it, and that cover is being used for comps. Like a lot of people are now riffing off of this cover, so I think it's inspired a new kind of wave of cover design. So I think editors are comping a lot of things about it, which is very interesting to me. The cover also has one of those little like. Kind of like hints co- cover, so like everything in the cover represents something, which I think is is really is really fun. Oh, and then the memoir that I picked, as I said, I cheated and can I books.
2: can I guess? Yes, is it? I'm glad my mom died.
1: Yes, it is. I just finished it yesterday, and holy Batman! Like what a life! Like the writing is phenomenal. It made me so sad. But she she's written it with such humor and self-awareness. Yeah, I was honestly just just an incredible read. So, yeah, I posted about that this week that I had finished that one. Cece, have you read that one?
2: I have and I loved it I so appreciate it you know for anyone who's writing a memoir like the way she captures the evolving consciousness of a child Tara Westover did that in Educated too and you know she did this in this book and it was just like mind-blowing when we are in scene and she is a child I feel like I am listening to a child of course with with the writing that could never be expected of a child but the the awareness the awareness the way she captured that and we're always in scene. We're always moving. It's pacey. But at the same time, there's still time for introspection and insights and revelations. And it's just really great. Like it's such She doesn't strong. waste
1: any words, right? Like every chapter, I think there's like 100 chapters like or 90 chapters. Everything's really short. And so every single chapter is a scene, right? It's telling us something. And we move a little bit in each section. But wow, that was that was phenomenally done. And talk about package, right? Like what an incredible, like that retro style cover yeah, that was, that was incredible.
2: Incredible. So good. And then I think for my runner up, I'll say Take My Hand by Dolan Perkins Valdez. Um, It was really great too. I really, really loved that. So, so many great books this year. And I wonder what books we'll be talking about next year.
1: Good question. Lots to come. Lots to come. Okay. So now I want to throw it out to, I mean, we are a podcast. We love our own podcast and we are, we also listen to other podcasts. So Cece, what podcasts have you been listening to this year?
2: I will mention the same thing. Non-client podcasts. (laughs) I have some clients who are very talented podcast hosts. So my obsession, I see podcasts as like a way to stay informed and When it comes to that, I listen to The Skim. The Skim, they have a weekly podcast that just breaks down the news, distills it in a way that's very easy to understand, gives you context. They don't waste any time. I love that. And I think they come out with it every Thursday, but I listen to it on Fridays. So I love that. And then when it comes to fun, I'm a big psychology buff. So for me, it's all about Esther Perel and Science Versus 2. Like, I really love those podcasts. I love, like unpacking things that we think we know everything about, but then we don't actually know. Things like our eyeballs. There was an entire episode on science versus our eyesight and how our eyesight is changing because of screens and stuff like that. And it was so interesting. And like I said, like with Esther Perel and where should we begin and how's work? I just love discussing relationships because I'm completely obsessed with the dynamics of all types of relationships, whether it's siblings or romantic relationships or anything else. So yeah, that's what I do with my free time. I'm a total nerd. What about you, Carly?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, fun fact about me: so I I love podcasts. I love storytelling in any form. The audio world is so interesting to me because we spend as agents and and so many people kind of in today's society we're just staring at our computers, right? Emailing all the time. I read just tons and tons on my on my Kindle app and on my computer. So obviously, listening is such a such a great way to kind of take in content in another form. But I, at the beginning of the year, had a little bit of like information overload, podcast anxiety, because I would see on the little podcast app, like, you have like however many, like hundreds of hours, right, of of content to listen to. And I was like, oh my God, I am so stressed about how much I want to listen to and how little time. So I had to take a little podcast break. actually earlier this year and just like slow my roll, calm my my listening anxiety. I also feel this about books sometimes, you know, when we just, we have such a long TBR list and then we can't get to it. And it's like, holy shit, like there's so much great content out there and my life is going to be so short and I'm not going to, I'm not going to get to it all. So got a little existential for you there, but I am back on the podcast kick. And some of my favorites are, I really liked Amanda Montel's book, and so she had her podcast, Sounds Like a Cult, kind of based off of it, and that's a really good one. They dive into like the cult of like wedding culture, the cult of Starbucks, you know, and so they they kind of break down like what is culty about all of these kind of pop culture things, and I really enjoy, I really enjoy them. I also like Be There in Five. Kate Kennedy, I think, is the is the host of that one. She it's much more like just a host and a mic kind of thing. But she, her her kind of like writing that she kind of like kind of writes essays that she that she does on the podcast. And I just love her style of writing. It's kind of it's very quick, it's very punchy, and I just enjoy spending time with her. She did a two and a half hour episode about the Taylor Swift album where she just like breaks down every song. So it's very much like a you know if you like a host kind of go with it. But in brand new podcast which just came out was if books could kill. Great new podcast on basically the worst airport style books of the past 50 years, like all of these, like the Freakonomics or the Malcolm Gladwells. And so they tackle one book, a show about how these kind of airport zeitgeisty books are like ruining our culture. So that's a really fun one for book nerds. That's a really, really great one. It's by the same host as maintenance face. So check that one out. And and CC actually taught me about this, which is Publishers Lunch, who sends out the publishers kind of the publishing industry news information every day has a podcast. You can listen to Publishers Lunch podcast. And CC actually taught me that.
2: Work podcasts are fun because you're learning, but at the same time, you feel like you're relaxing. And I forgot to mention also like the podcast that I was most obsessed with, but it was, I listened to it. I binged it at the beginning of this year. So it just feels like a long time ago. Once upon a time at Bennington College, it is so good, like so incredibly good. Like obviously Bennington College, you know, the wildest school in, in the country, like Rarified and and insular and privileged in in ways that was mythologized in fiction by so many prominent writers and oh my gosh you will get chills when you listen to that podcast like I I loved it so much and I recommended it to a client of mine who is writing a book that's like in the same vein so she mentioned like oh yes I get in the mood so I you know put that podcast on and then I get in the mood to to write so that's really interesting too.
1: Yes, thank you for reminding me of that one. Now I need to add that to my list because that was on my list when I was on my podcast hiatus. So I didn't get into that one. Yeah, that was a really good one. Okay, now I want to switch gears to music. So I know CC just likes to kind of get in the groove and, and listen to one song for a while. But CC, what was what where were you into this year? Any any certain songs that you were very into? I am a very strange person
2: when it comes to music. I listen to songs on
1: repeat. It's what I
2: do. I'm not sure what this says about me, but I have my songs that I listen to when I I want to rage and you know that includes everything from You Oughta Know by Alanis Morissette to Piece of Me by Britney Spears. And then I have songs that I listen to like this time of year, especially like I love listening to holiday songs like I love Hallelujah. There's a beautiful rendition of Ave Maria by Celine Dion that I love. And then I have also songs that I listen to. So I'm a big fan of Italian songs. I love like Conte Partito. I love Serenere. I don't even understand all of the lyrics because my Italian is awful, but I understand some of it. And I just love the rhythm and it just gets me feeling like I'm, I don't know, transported into a different moment. And also, I love Bossa Nova, which I guess if I were to anglicize it, I would call it Bossa Nova. It's, in my opinion, the best of Brazilian music. So also listen to a lot of that. It's really rare that I add a new song to my repertoire. I have... I have this list of songs that I listen to and I just keep playing them and it just works. And it brings me like the comfort of repetition. I don't know. Neuroscience probably has an explanation for it. I don't know what that is, but I enjoy that. I am not someone who like when people talk about the new songs, I'm like, I believe you, but I will probably not listen to that for another five years.
1: (laughs) Yes. And Cece, you also don't drive. So you're not in the car kind of on the radio, like listening to whatever's on the radio. So another fact about Cece. That's
2: exactly right. That's exactly right. So back when I used to drive many, many years ago, I would drive every day. Then like many years ago, then yes, you're right. I would somehow eventually listen to to other songs this is true although honestly even back then I I would just play sometimes I would just play the same song on repeat like in my cd player I still had cd players back then that's that's how long ago that was
1: we're still so young the year is over but we're still so young okay so my favorite songs of the year so gosh, I mean I kind of scrolled through my I don't use Spotify, so I use my Apple Music. So I was kind of scrolling through and seeing what I was what I was searching and what I was listening to. I was very into Harry's House. I will I will give Harry Styles a lot of credit. Very into Harry's House. Not my favorite album of his, but very into Harry's House. I think Cinema was my favorite song. I'm also very into country music. So I went to Nashville this year for Killer Nashville Writers Conference. So I was like extra getting into country music roots. I grew up in the country. I went, my, my elementary school was like surrounded by cornfields on all sides, very much a country, a country girl at heart, a small town girl at heart. So I always, yeah, I feel like I have to come back to those country roots. Garth Brooks, you know, reminds me of my dad and yeah. So anyway, very much a country girl. So I was getting into a lot more country music this year and I'm very into Haley Witters. She came out with a new album raised this year and the song, the neon, that was kind of my favorite, my favorite song. And when I was in Nashville, there's so many amazing singer songwriters. And I had gone to kind of an event with a friend where they had a bunch of different kind of a panel of singer songwriters on the stage. And they would all kind of like rotate through their kind of current music and what they're working on. And so there was this songwriter on stage and he blew me away very much like Chris Stapleton. If you're into Chris Stapleton. His name was Matt. I don't even know how to pronounce his last name. K-O-Z-I-O-L, Kozeal, Matt Coziel. And he has an album called uh, Wild Horse that came out this year that I was very into. The entire album is phenomenal. And he's even better live. And he actually opened for Haley Witters a little bit this summer. So that's kind, of, that's kind of my vibe. Very much trying to listen to as many female country artists as I can. Oh, and uh, I just had another thought. This is very much just a a wild card of an, of an episode here. Another one of my favorite books this year was Her Country. And that was about women in country music and kind of how they've been pushing back against the patriarchy. So there's another one of my favorite books of the year, Her Country, H-E-R, Her Country. And then I also was on the, listening to the radio not that long ago, and I heard this song come on. And I'm very also speaking of kind of female singers, very into female rock bands. I love the beaches. And I heard this song called Control by Mono whales all right. Well, everybody can go now listen to all these great songs that I suggested. And Cece, I feel like I, I didn't know that much about your, your Italian music interests. So we're learning lots about each other.
2: I like listening to songs when I don't necessarily understand the lyrics because it just makes me connect in a very strange way with the language more. Like with romance languages, you can always understand a little bit of the words because if you speak one of them, you kind of understand a little bit of all of them, but like even songs in, in like Russian, like sometimes I will listen to a song like that. And it's just, I like, I like, I I just like it. My brain just likes that. Okay. So I have a follow-up for you. You mentioned Mm -hmm. country music and- one of my best friends is so into country music and she's always like sharing songs with me to get me into it too. And I watched a really cool documentary on Netflix. They have that, their explained series. It's a series where like things are explained and they have an episode on the exclamation points. They have an episode on royalty and they have an episode on country music. Mm. And it's really interesting. So if anyone, you know, kind of like me, if you're trying to learn more, I, it's like 30 minutes maybe even less so it's like bite size and I try to watch one every night every evening with my husband and it's just it's a lot of fun I am a big fan of documentaries
1: nice yeah I didn't even I didn't even make a list of our favorite tv shows Cece what have you been watching on tv this year I'm such a huge fan
2: of TV shows. Okay, so first of all, Succession, right? Like number one all time succession. I am the biggest succession fan. I will happily share the number one title with someone if they want to, but I will not give it up for anyone because I'm completely obsessed. I can probably like quote most of the show. That's how often I've rewatched episodes because I have my memory for TV shows is, is pretty good. And then Yellow Jackets. Was Yellow Jackets this year? I think it was, right? Like the beginning of the year. I loved Yellow Jackets. I
1: think it was this year, but yeah.
2: I'm not entirely sure now. We didn't organize a roundup. We should have, but loved Yellow Jackets. That was so good. That was such an amazing show. What about you?
1: Oh, man. So I... I really fell in love with Abbott Elementary this year. It is a comedy set in a Philadelphia public school, like elementary school. So funny. Oh my gosh. It's kind of like The Office, but set in a Philadelphia elementary school, like a public school. So good. They break the fourth wall, like look at the camera a bit. It's really, really funny actors. It's just a half hour comedy. So it's something you can kind of like dive into. I also over the winter time, like last winter was I've got really into Superstore. I know that's not a new show, but that was like another lighthearted one where sometimes the, I find the world a little heavy. So, so I need some lightness. And I just saw that the new season of The Crown came out. So I started watching that. I'm only about halfway through. I did Instagram some of my thoughts about that. It's not the best season that's ever come out from them. but Yeah, I'm I can't stop watching it. I'm like, I know the monarchy is bad. It needs to be abolished, but like I can't stop.
2: <laughs> well Explained has an episode on why we can't let go of royalty either, because it's a fairy tale and we're all obsessed with fairy tales. Oh, I just want to go. say on the crown, listen, that man being cast as Prince Charles, I forget the actor's name. He played Noah
1: in it's the Dominic Affair. something. Dominic. Yeah. yeah.
2: That is the world's biggest fantasy casting ever ever I'm like listen I not Charles should be
1: flattered (laughs)
2: very flattered Charles should be incredibly flattered if it is true that he has insecurities I don't know a single person who doesn't have insecurities all of his insecurities now no longer exist because that man was cast as him so yes like that Yeah, so
1: I I noticed in the show they tried to do some really far, like, far away, like, pan shots where, like, the only thing that was similar between him and Charles was the hair, so they could just get, like, a little bit of a silhouette. I'm like, you weren't there trying so hard to make Charles happen here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love this so much. Okay, another
1: show that I love, The Good Fight.
2: I, I used to watch The Good Wife when it was airing, and, like, The Good Fight is even better. It's surreal, and it's funny, and it's hilarious. And... There's so many parallels to what's actually happening in our world, but like everything's upped because it's again, surreal and it's just, it's just the best. I love it. I love TV shows. They are fun a fun way to get into storytelling and they are the only reason why i don't read all day because otherwise i would definitely just read all day
1: all right and i wanted to make a correction i caught myself i said something this year and then i was like wait a minute that is not right i said that rebecca searle had an a in her name and she did not so i'm going to correct myself apologies to the author who i tried to correct
2: i love corrections um okay anything else that we should cover
1: CC and I signed some clients from the podcast this year. And I think I actually signed three. One of them was a co-rep with Cece, which was very exciting. So yay yes.
2: We are wrapping up the year with the best news ever, which is that we now have a client together. And if you listen to the podcast, then you know what episode we're talking about. Carly loved her submission. Then I got to read it and Carly was generous enough to let me come on board and we chatted with the author. We had like the call and it was so fun because she was like, wait, but. I would get both of you and in my head I was going wait maybe she doesn't want me and she seemed really excited so I'm choosing to believe that she does so now we're all very happy to be working together and we can't wait to update you on where that what happens with that
1: thank you everybody for another great year thanks for sending in all your material and keeping us entertained and listening to us every week thank you thank you thank you
2: thank you so much bye everyone
0: and that's it for today's episode I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup